Hello and welcome to the Selfish Podcast. Today we have Bo- Bobby Hedgelin Taylor, and he sounds like a man of uh, multiple talents. Very interesting from what I've read of him so far, and I'm very excited to hear more about him personally and how he got into the things he got into. So, hi, Bobby. Can you just share with the guests and the audience where where in the world are you, and what time of day is it for you? It is the morning, and it is a sunny day in New York City in the United States. Oh, nice. It's not a sunny day here in Spain. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's just the rain's just broke. But it's been heavy, heavy rain. It's just started. Yeah, And we actually met via a Facebook group uh, where people connect for podcasts and stuff. Yes. Have you done many podcasts before or whereabouts are you in your podcasting journey? Um, well, um, when I started my journey as a uh, uh, um, as a, as an author, I basically came to um, I came to it through ma- many different sources. But I had done a weekend of workshops. Uh, it was more of a week. It, it was it was about twelve days altogether. But there was a weekend of intense workshops for first time authors. And one of the um, breakout sessions, the uh, speaker said to to get better um, access to a different audience as well as share your brand as well as connect with people and you get a better interviewing style um, to schedule and try to get on a hundred podcasts in one year. So I went, um, I went through, um, I went through that, <clears throat> that writing process, but then I started to promote my books even before they were p- published. And, uh, and, and it was really fascinating that it was actually building my brand. It was also making me a better interviewee uh, so that I had a chance to share, you know, uh, things clearly as to what I was doing and what my path was. And, um, uh, so you are number, I believe 89 in the 100 podcasts. Um, because I have, uh, um, because I have a, uh, um, I I reached one year on February 12th, so I didn't quite make a hundred, but it came very close. Um, but the idea behind it is, and I, if there are first time authors out there, I suggest it highly because I've learned so much about my brand. I've learned about my books. I've learned about other people and I learned about interviewing styles as well. So I'm happy to share that. Oh, nice. Yeah. My second to last guest, she is also an author and she was also, she's on her 89th podcast as well was my episode. It was also 89. So that's nice oh, wow. correlation. And, um, yeah, and she was just saying she was doing the same, trying to reach 100, and had someone else telling me they're trying to reach 100. So I wonder if mm. that is a trending thing that people are sharing now to try and just do that in a year, do 100 in a year, which is a lot. But like you said, the process and the, the growth you get from it is like just so many different things. They said it helps you build your own way of uh, directing yourself in how you speak, what you share. But also for me, it's all about the affirmation in your intentions and what you're actually doing because every time, you refining that process of what you're actually doing and I found just my doing YouTube doing podcasts um, it's just benefited me in so many ways even if no one ever listened (laughs) well the other thing too is that it broadens both of our audience even if there even if there's 30 people that are listening right now and then over the course of a year 150 to a thousand people listen to this episode it still adds to both of our our reach. 
Um, I share everything on every platform um, whenever it's released. And then I put it on my link tree. And I have people that are just, you know, they, they're, they're podcast junkies and they just like something to read, to listen to while they're uh, in the car. And, um, and so, you know, uh, I hope that my, uh, my message and my voice and my stories uh, are enlightening. So, oh, Nice. And I'd really like to get to know you more personally and deep. And I'd love to start with people's childhood and where they grew up and what life was like. So would you be able to paint me a picture of what your life was like, where you grew up, what your parents did like pre-10 years old? Sure. Um, well, I was born in Pennsylvania, which is about an hour and a half outside of New York. And um, I was born on a small family farm, and uh, my parents both were, my father was a welder and a very gifted musician, and my, my mother was a cobbler when I was very, very young, and then the rest of my life she worked in restaurants and was a factory worker. So I come from very limited means, uh, poor family from the Pocono Mountains of, of Pennsylvania. But um, my great-grandfather and grandfather bought plots of land in Pennsylvania on the top of a mountain. And they both uh, put houses there. <clears throat> but then my great grandfather sold a plot of land to each one of his 13 children and surrounded himself with his family. And so it became this little bubble of a, t a crazy Italian people living on the top of a mountain. And I know the last name Hedgeland doesn't really uh, scream Italian. My father's father was half English, so that's where Hedgeland comes from. It's an English name. But I was raised by a Sicilian family, Sicilian grandmother, and yes, I have red hair and green eyes. <laughs> so so uh, <laughs> there are redheaded Italians out there. And um, so I grew up in this little bubble of dysfunctionality and crazy people um, who I love dearly because they shaped and molded me into who I am, regardless of how uh, they were situated in my life. Um, I went to uh, elementary school, high school, and college, all in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, and then uh, got the bug to come to New York to become an actor in the 80s. And um, I had been <clears throat> I'd been working in the city as a ballroom dancer and in nightclubs and in uh, restaurants. Um, back then, there was a great uh, call to have ballroom dancers come in, perform, and then get people up to dance. So that was kind of like my first, my first um, uh, sort of full-time job in the entertainment industry. And then slowly after that, I got a full scholarship to the American Musical and Dramatic Academy in New York City. So I permanently moved here and made this my, my home ever since. So I've been here since the 80s and uh, I've had that that crazy rags to riches, but there's no riches. I've just <laughs> rags to rags kind of uh, kind of uh, upbringing. Oops, sorry, my, my phone alarm just decided to go off during there. I apologize. No problem. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's really interesting transformation from like that sort of home life, like you said, living in the mountains where yes. you're surrounded by your own family bloodline. It sounds like it's a little community within itself. And 13 children is a, is a lot for him to have that many children. Absolutely. And then each of them must have had some children. So there must have been quite a large <laughs> group of you living there. Um, yes. And it was the extended families that started to settle in either in the land that was sold to them. So this is the other thing. My great-grandfather, because of the legalities in Pennsylvania, he wasn't able to sell the land uh, he wasn't able to give the land away, so he sold mm. the land for $1 to each child. Yeah. 
So that's how the that's how it happened. I still have one of the deeds that I looked at. It, I was like, one dollar? What is this? Eighteen eighty four? You know. So, um, but uh, yeah. So so that was how he brought his children from uh, between Sicily and Jersey City was basically where everybody was settled anyway. And everybody either moved up and then dis- dissipated, or the ones the core that stayed there uh, were there until I left the mountain in the eighties. And then now it's sort of dissipated there are still a few people up there on that on that part of the the hill but um it's not the same as it was when i was growing up it's it's sort of you know it's sort of liquidated into uh into you know people selling their property other people moving in and buying and raising and putting up houses and things like that so it's no longer ravioli mountain as i call it um (laughs) and that was the derogatory term that was uh, that became the, the the title of my cookbook, Escape to Ravioli Mountain, a memoir and food, um, which I'm publishing very soon. I was just editing it all day yesterday, and it's I hate editing. Oh my god, I hate <laughs> it. Um, but it would be my second book. My first book is about my mom. Um, my mom passed from COVID in uh, 2020, and um, uh, so I um, she was she was she had dementia. And she also had a very interesting way to coin a phrase. And so um, for the past six or seven years before she died, I would be documenting those statements and I would write them down. And then it became a book of quotes from my mom. So my first published book was uh, Shit My Mama Says, um, uh, A Humorous Look at Life While Dealing with Dementia. And it's great for caregivers. It's also great for anybody who needs a good laugh, especially in this world of uh, that we're living in right now with war and global pandemics and 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 uh, horrible people trying to take over governments so yeah i had a skim read because you sent a copy to me today but i didn't get enough time to give it a thorough read so i had a little skim read and the most amount of swear words i've heard or read in a very long time and that's gonna be like humor and you might not have known i don't know how much of my content you've seen but i shared my mom had severe schizophrenia for my entire mm-hmm. life and i was her full-time carer and me and my brother looked after her but it was humor that kept us going. We would make each other yes. laugh. If she'd done something completely uh, ridiculous, like you could easily just fall into a pit of pity for yourself and for her and everything. So you try and like bring each other up with laughter, with humor, mimicry, um, different things to actually bring yourself, it felt, into a much better state. So you could be more productive. Is Was that something that you naturally went to and it sounds like your mum had humor already in her nature. Was it, do you think it was her that brought that humor into you and Absolutely. enabled you to have that humor to witness it in that way? Absolutely. In fact, it was her coping mechanism. And it was very funny because like, um, I, I, now, I, I now do stand-up comedy as well as one of my hyphens. Um, it's, part, it's just something that brings joy to me and to, to many people. I love it. I love making people laugh. There's nothing more addictive talking about addiction, there is nothing more addictive than being in front of an audience and having them laugh at something you said or did. And uh, I can't with good conscience say that that doesn't come from my mom. From my mom, it does. My mom, uh, she had every stand-up comic album from the 60s, 70s, and 80s on, on vinyl and on 8-track. And she would play them on loop. And she was a whiz at electricity. So she would rig up uh, speakers that would be in the yard, in the garden, in the chicken coop. Like there would be these speakers so she could have music. She loved country music. She loved pop music. She loved rock music. Um, but 
but she would play them on loop and we had the record player that had the the arm that would repeat the record we had the a track that you could put on that would repeat the whatever uh tape was in it so my mom had that ingrained in her and she played them incessantly and I didn't even pay attention, but when I, you know, doing, writing the book and then learning more about her through to being her caregiver, I realized that her coping mechanism is definitely my coping mechanism. And it was the way that I deal with um, everyday life and stress and, and, and horrible things happening. Um, I do it through humor. I, and, and one of the things that she was a master at was deflection. And she could deflect a conversation by throwing in a joke. She could change the energy of a room by throwing in a joke and I can do the same thing. And it, it's like, I'm the one, I'm the most, most, the person in staff meetings who says the most inappropriate things to get people to stop get being on their loop that they get stuck in. And so, yeah, it was definitely her influence um, that, that led me to stand up comedy, but also that it was something that I learned later in life that it was just, it was just the way she coped and it was the way that she raised us too, because if we were having a bad day or if we were sad or if we were angry, she would do stuff to break that energy. She was a master at it. And this is a woman of simple means. She never graduated from high school. She never went to college. She worked all of her life in restaurants and, and factories. In fact, I, um, because we're, our family was so poor, I would sign out of work. I sign out of school at noon every day from my sophomore year to my senior year, and I would go to work. And then in my senior year, I would go to college classes in the evening. So I was going to high school in the morning, and then I would sign out, and I would just take my basic courses. I didn't take any, and whatever was required by the state. And then the electives, I didn't have to take. They allowed me work, work release um, based on need. So I would go work in the factory with my mom making, I think, $3 an hour, um, stuffing envelopes for a bulk mailer. And then on the weekends, I worked as a waiter slash bartender slash whatever they needed at the restaurant that both my mother and grandmother worked at. And um, so even when I was 16, I worked in a pizzeria with my grandmother. My grandmother's very, very Sicilian, very tiny, long black hair, and she was a whiz at making pizza and making anything, any Italian food. That's how my cookbook came to be was because in the 1970s, I lived with my grandmother. So I was flooded with those memories during the pandemic. And here we are in lockdown. What do you do in lockdown? You know, so I, uh, I navigated that path by transferring my, my, my art into writing, which I've never done. And um, that's one thing I do want to say is that if I can do it, anyone can do it. Um, writing is hard, but telling your story is easy. The rest of it is surrounding yourself with good people and positive influences and doing the research. There are a million YouTube uh, tutorials out there for all kinds of writers. So um, I encourage people to just go for it because it is definitely rewarding. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I was really interested, like, you said in your early, early when you left um, the mountains and you went into New York and you was doing, you was dancing, mm -hmm. where did, where did your performance sort of life come from? What, what drove you to be a sort of performer in that way? Well, and having, also okay. being a male and being a male and going and dancing, was that something in, 
in your family or in anything that was frowned upon or was it always um, sort of a blessing? Well, this was, here's the thing. It was not okay to be gay. It was not okay to be a dancer. It was not okay to be a male dancer anytime uh, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, but it it happened um, and people people, uh, accepted it. Um, my parents were both artistic people. My mother, like I said, she loved stand-up comedy. She loved performance. She loved, she loved art. She loved music. My father was a musician. He played the most brilliant guitar. He could pick up any instrument. And so in my earlier life, that was my, um, that was sort of my go-to was art and music. And I was surrounded by it. But I also have to say that I was part of uh, a Boy Scout group. And our our Boy Scouts group's focus was American in, uh, uh, Native American culture and dance. So we would document and recreate American Indian Native American dances, and um, and and primarily with the Cherokee in North Carolina. And it, we worked with the Cherokee Historical Society and the tribe to document their dances, but that's theater. That's the most primitive theater out there is telling and teaching the children how not to act or how to act, telling them about the harvest, telling them about the quail, telling them about, you know, what, what, how, how the deer is part of the land, how the bear is part of the land and all of these. And there was a, a, a beautiful dance about an, uh, a, a bald eagle that I actually got to recreate. Um, so, those were my, that was like where I cut my teeth um, for the, my love of the stage and for my love of dance. But then it wasn't until um, in the 80s, there was a, a ballet theater um, that gave me a full scholarship. The Stroudsburg Ballet Theater was hiring male dancers for a ballroom show. And I thought, well, you know, it was frowned upon for sure. Um, it was not, like I said, it was not okay to be gay. It was not okay to be a dancer on top of all that. But a ballroom dancer, that was the most masculine way to approach the art that I thought. And um, at that time, that was the safest way for me to, you know, be who I was and yet still be, and yet still appease the people around me. But I absolutely fell in love with it. It was, it was, it was this beautiful art form. And, um, you know, nowadays it's, things are so different and people are accepted. I've, you know, I've, I've come out so many times. I, I you know, I, I, I don't feel like that's even a question. Um, and my, my extended family, they have their, they have their opinions. So there are extended family that I do not associate with because of that very strong anti, uh, feelings that they have about my people, you know, you know what I mean? So, um, so it wasn't, it wasn't something that was actually glorified, um, or, but, or frowned upon. I kind of found the safest route at that time. But then once I moved to New York, you know, all bets were off. I was tap dancing. I was doing jazz. I was in a ballet corps. So I really went balls to the wall dance. Dance was my core. That was how I started my life. Um, My body was my instrument. I wasn't, and this was another thing that why I gravitated towards dance. One of the stories that's in my cookbook is the story of my first words. And I was incredibly shy when I was baby. I, I, it took me so long to speak. They thought I had a speech impediment. They thought that I had a, that I was deaf, but I was just painfully shy. And I was also in this very bombastic, dysfunctional family. So as a young 
person. I was just very quiet. Um, but and I, and I don't know about language on your podcast, but my first words were fucking reindeer. So, um, so I mean, you can bleep it out if you need to. Um, but that though, that is the God's honest truth. My first words were fucking reindeer. And, it, and, and it all stems from being so painfully shy. And yet, um, the story, the way the story rounds out, I can tell you the story too, but, um, my grandmother was coming over for dinner. My mother was making dinner. It was around Christmas time and I have an older brother and we, we get two of everything every Christmas. My mother bought two of everything. And um, we even, she even dressed us alike for the first 16 years of our life. Um, but we were toddlers and we were fighting over these two inflatable reindeer that my mother bought. They were side by side on the, uh, in the, by the Christmas tree. So one pops and we start fighting over the other one. Mom hears a struggle in the living room, comes in with a wooden spoon, of course, separates us into our thinking chairs because we didn't have timeouts back then. We had thinking chairs. And, um, and then we were, we were separated because, you know, we were fighting. So then my grandmother's car pulls up and we both run to the door to meet her. And I grab her skirt and in full voice point to the closet where my mother threw the reindeer in. I said, Nana, Nana, fucking reindeer, fucking reindeer. So my mother grabbed the reindeer from us and said, give me that fucking reindeer. And she threw it in the closet and we ran to the door. And that's how my first words were born. <laughs> so, and do you think that language was influenced from your mother? So, oh so my she's... God, are you kidding? Yeah. Yes. They both had mouth like truck drivers. Yeah. And that's always been that way. <laughs> you know, this is the thing. I, I also feel like there's, there's a different, uh, there's a difference in the way that people, um, you know, and the manner of speech is always, you know, regional, but also manner of speech and also what is allowed. And during that time period, remember, stand up comedy was still bubbling up. So it was coming more mainstream. You could see stand up on TV. You could see it on the Jack Parr show. You could see it on Johnny Carson. So my mother had all of those albums that had all of the foul language on it. So that influenced us for sure as far as what we could and couldn't say. Um, but my mother, my mother and grandmother both had mouths like a truck, truck driver, as we say here in the States. Um, it's very much a, uh, a regional thing. And, you know, my grandmother was incredibly religious and it's funny that she was, you know, she would have this, this mouth like a truck driver one day and then go to church on Sunday the next day, you know? So, um, <laughs> and that's just the nature of the beast, I think. <laughs> nice. No, it sounds like it's, like it's such an interesting sort of upbringing and lifestyle, and you've been so many different, multi-talented in in so many ways. And um, I want to know, like, what was your first, like, what comes to mind? What was your first struggle in life that you um, remember? What comes to mind first, as the first first struggle? struggle? Definitely, I mean, struggle that I absolutely fought with was definitely being gay. When I when I realized, I think I was about eight or nine years old. Um, I realized that I, that I definitely knew that I was different and I did not want to be gay. I definitely didn't want to, I wanted, I wanted what everybody else wanted and it just, just was not in my, my chemistry. Um, and you know, I fought with that tooth and nail. I had many, many dark nights of the soul praying, um, cause that's what we did back then praying for, you know, to, for God to make me straight. And, um, you know, that was, that would have been that. And as well as, you know, I didn't try to hide who I was. I was very flamboyant. 
Um, but I didn't, you know, I, I, whenever anybody ever broached the subject about homosexuality, I always was like, well, I'm straight, but I just prefer, I know I like these colorful, I like the color pink, or I like these, you know, these, these flamboyant characters, you know, um, in the eighties, I was very into the, the British invasion of how, you know, the, the Bo, David Bowie and, um, uh, Mick Jagger and the Thompson twins and, um, you know, uh, uh, boy, George, Marilyn and, um, dead or alive, all those gender fuck gender bender type of performers were just, they were still, they still had an air of masculinity, which is what I stuck to because I thought that was safe. Um, but it still was Bobby trying to be Bobby. And the biggest struggle was with myself because, you know, there's, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that you're born gay like you're born with blue eyes. It's just your chemistry. It's your makeup. It's in your DNA. And um, yeah. the more you embrace it, the better your life will be. Um, but that was definitely it. And, and being in a part of the country that was very homophobic, very racist, um, it was really difficult because you would try to get along, you would try to belong. And it was never a um, was never an easy path until I came to New York and I met you know all these fabulous people. You know they were like back home. I remember one of the one of my uncles were like, "All all queers need to be on an island somewhere." And I said, "Yeah, Manhattan." <laughs> so you know, so we, so that's where I ended up. And um, <laughs> and 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 that would have been probably this that and also struggling with. Um, reading because I'm, I, I had a reading comprehension issue and it wasn't until later that I realized that uh, I had a little bit of dyslexia because even though they were testing us for reading comprehension, I memorized the shape of the words so I could get through those tests, but I didn't really understand what the words meant. So there was a little bit of that in my, in the back of my brain um, that I was working through as well. So, and just feeling just feeling dumb all the time. I don't like to feel stupid. I don't like to feel an unintelligent person. Um, yeah, no, it's really interesting. Can I ask, when, so when you was eight and you first sort of had a realization that you was mm -hmm. different, um, like I just, I can't remember the first time I knew I was straight sort of thing. It's not so, mm -hmm. I don't remember the first time I looked at a girl. It's not there as a memory. Um, like what, at what point did like what I'm just trying to think what did you what do you remember well, sort of feeling and like was there a moment that happened yeah or was it like, I mean it may have even been earlier than eight years old actually because no I was in fifth grade and we had a we you know it was the it was it was the the, the 60s and 70s so we had a we had a dance at the school and I danced with a boy and that and no one said anything but I, I kind of was like, well, none of the girls want to dance with me. And I asked this boy to dance. And so that was unheard of at the time, but no one questioned it. It was mm. just kind of like, you know, uh, and partially, you know, because the teacher that I remember being that, that gym teacher that we had, um, Miss Deswanick was her name. I'll never forget it. Um, but she brought dance to the school. And for the first time, you know, I remember being three years old watching the movie West Side Story. And I remember it because I was three years old because it was in the house. It was in our old house, the house that we moved up, uh, mo that we lived in until I was three years old. 
And then we moved on to the hill when I was four. And I remember that very vividly saying, boys can dance. Boys can do that. I never saw a boy do that. I want to do that. And I remember that memory. Like it stuck with me very vividly. And then later, and then later in, in life, seeing someone like John Travolta in Greece and in Staying Alive and in Saturday Night Fever, here's this macho guy dancing. And then it was sort of like, well, if he can do it, why can't I? You know, so seeing those people in that movie, in those two, those three movies, you know, it was very much um, informative that a man was allowed to dance. And indeed, a man could dance. It just had to be done in a masculine way for society to accept it. And that was yeah. where I, I had, you know, I had to navigate in a very, very specific way because there was just no way I was going to get the acceptance that my family actually were capable of. Um, they could accept a ballroom dancer. They could accept uh, a masculine dancer, but they would never accept, um, uh, they would just never accept someone who's gay. Now that, that was my, my immediate family, you know, have since uh, all come, you know, come around. Cause I have a cousin who's gay and I have an, I had an uncle who was gay. So, you know, as uh, society became more, accepting people would lighten up of their viewpoints and um but i wish that they were i wish they were there in that point when i was you know very young because i could have used i could have used those loving arms and loving guidance um because i feel like that in itself uh is what frames you as a person and i could have probably reached goals a lot faster had i not been basically hiding who I was by trying yeah. to be uh, hyper-masculine or, or going to the stereo archetypes of, of hyper-masculine people. Yeah. Um, so what just, you, yeah, go ahead. you mentioned with your, like, so you was dancing and then like at what point, did you say come out as a professional dancer first or you come out as gay and you didn't mention your I, father much. Did you come out to your mother first? Like, what, I, how did I that process work? It was very interesting. Uh, it was an interesting process because um, I came out to my cousin first. My cousin, who is, uh, you know, my closest, and I knew that she would accept because she accepted me because she had gay friends that she introduced us to. So I knew that that she was a safe option. My biggest fear was that if I came out to somebody that they would tell my parents before I was ready to tell my parents. Hmm. Um, my father was dying of cancer at the time that I came out. So I didn't actually tell him to his face because he was, he was basically dying. But um, circumstances <clears throat> at the time led, to, led me to come out to my mother. But before that, I, I was sort of forced out of the closet by my brother and sister-in-law. Uh, my sister-in-law was at the time very supportive, loving, and she just knew before anybody else knew. And she sort of, you know, she sort of pushed me into that uh, into that part of of my life. And then I told my mom, and then my father passed away, and then I didn't have any relationship with my mom for almost a year because she was not very. She wasn't very accepting. She was very standoffish at that point. And we had had a falling out about all of that. And um, she just didn't know how to deal with it. And she didn't know how to come to terms with it. And while at the same time, she was dealing with the loss of my father. So um, 
and and my father was not exactly a talkative person. He wasn't really open and he wasn't somebody that I felt safe with. I don't really remember him that much, which is he's been gone almost 30 years. So I don't remember him in, I don't remember a lot about him, but he was and still is an influence in my life because he taught me how to read music. I mean, he taught me not to read music. Sorry. He taught me how to feel music and to listen and use my ear to uh, be able to sing and to be able to play instruments is about listening. It's not so much about reading off a page and trying to find a note. It's about listening to where the music is. Now, you need to have somebody play it for you if you've never seen it before or heard it before. Um, so I do have a little bit of music theory in me, so I kind of have an idea. But dad was, you know, dad was a little bit uh, not not as open and as uh, embracing as, as uh, my other relatives were. Okay, what instrument did he play? Um, my dad played the guitar, and he could pick up any instrument and play it. Uh, I had started with saxophone and I hated it. And then, um, and I tried guitar and I hated it. Uh, but then I, I started singing and I loved singing. So I stick, stuck with the voice, but, uh, fast forward to, I think it was 2000. I got the, I got a job in a musical called Barnum. And in that musical, everybody in the cast plays instruments, but I was the cover. I was the swing. I covered 17 people in the chorus. So, if they played an instrument, I would learn just their parts. So I had to learn snare drum, bass drum, uh, accordion. Um, oh, what was the other? Uh, oh, glockenspiel. And I would have to learn these instruments to go on for other people. There was also a cello moment in there, but there was no way I was learning cello that quickly to be able to play it on <laughs> stage. It just wasn't happening. And the, for, the, for the performances where that person, where the cellist uh, character was out, they just had a musician step in and play the part. Um, but I learned from what my dad taught me how to deal with those, uh, those things. And I practiced a lot. And I, you know, recently started to play violin, doing online tutorials. Um, so I, I have musicality in my body. It's just part of my, my DNA, it's just growing up with a musician as a father. So. Yeah, and it's so nice, like you say, you don't have like the strong memories because it's so long ago, but the core value that he installed in you is still something that you're constantly using and i wonder whether because to me i see the body but like you said earlier the body's an instrument and life is the song we play so when we're in tune it's a beautiful song when we're out of tune no one wants to hear it or play it exactly. um, and i think do you think your ability to even dance was because he taught you how to feel music i think so because when you are the only way a dancer can actually convey emotion is by absorbing the intensity of uh, uh, the intensity of the music and feeling where the music is going. There are highs, there are lows. Um, classic example is in the 80s, we had the chord progression that came through with a lot of the music that was in the 80s. There was always that, you know, uh, in every Duran Duran song, there was the chord progression was low, but then it would jump the octave or it would jump at the end of the song so that you knew you were getting to the end of the song because the music got more intense but then the octave changed or the pitch changed. Something changes about it. And 
that is usually where a choreographer would put their tricks or they would put a lift. They would do something to illustrate what was going on in the music on stage so that the body was an instrument representing the music. Now, not mm. every choreographer is going to agree with that. Everybody has their opinions about music and, and dance. I found that, to me, one of the most beautiful things is seeing a ball gown float across the dance floor during a waltz. It's just the most beautiful, like, flowing, you know, you, and that's a marriage of the arts. It's a marriage of dance, the marriage of music. It's a marriage of costume design, and, and it's also a marriage of culture. Um, so those kind of uh, artistic moments that I had when I was younger were all elevated when I became a dancer because I was like, it was an aha moment, but it was also like, this is what my dance teachers were all telling me, you know, about ballet. Like you're counting, yes, you're counting the music, counting the music. You're entering and exiting and you're listening for um, the highs and lows, the, the, the uh, elements that create um, the music in the same way that your body is going across the stage. So I always had that um, ability to connect to music. And that's even in my later life as a circus performer, I always chose powerful songs or instrumentals to perform to. Because if, if, it, was a, if it was a song that had a, a message lyrically, I didn't want to illustrate the lyrics because I felt like that was doing the music a disservice and also it was doing me a disservice as an artist. I, I used to listen to a lot of film soundtracks and a lot of film soundtracks, like believe it or not, the Jurassic Park film soundtrack is the most beautiful, uh, lush orchestrations that anybody could ever use. But it's so identifiable that it's almost comical to use in a piece nowadays. Um, but, uh, but, but the, you know, like, when you connect to music, both on the ground and in the air, there are still ways to connect movement to the intensity of the music. And I would use that in my, my aerial performances as well. Yeah, I was going to ask with the circus performers, because like I said, uh, multi-talented and you've done a lot of different things. And I can see how they're all synchronized. They're all in the same area of like, say, performance, dance and movement. Uh, but how did circus life and how did that enter <laughs> your life? It's very interesting because um, I had only been to the circus at Madison Square Garden in the 70s. My cousin took us. And uh, we would go every year. Every year, Ringling Brothers was in, in, in there. Or if there was another circus that was what we call a mud show down in Jersey, we would go see a, a show there. And there was I was always fascinated and enamored by the acrobats. Um, but because acrobatic lessons were so expensive, I never got the opportunity I also, we didn't have a male gymnastics team at my school, so there was no opportunity for me to learn acrobatics. So when I moved to New York, I was bartending in between gigs, and I was coat checking, bartending, waitering, whatever I could do to make ends meet. Um, and one of my regular customers had heard me sing because I, where I worked one was, where one time was a piano bar. And he was like, I want you to be in this musical. You're perfect for it. You don't have to audition. I've heard you sing you're charismatic and you're an actor. And it was uh, a musical version of an old Disney film called The Circus Adventures of Toby Tyler. And um, Toby Tyler was the, the, the catalyst for, it was this little red haired boy from the Midwest who ran away and joined the circus. 
So I didn't have any circus skills, but they found the only coach in Manhattan at the time, a Ukrainian Olympian, Irina Gold. Uh, she's still alive, but she has dementia right now and does not remember me, but I certainly remember her. And uh, she kicked my butt. She was one of the best trainers I had. And she also introduced me to the world of circus. And, um, and I was able to then take my dance training and put it in the air. It was like this no-brainer as well because circus performers made triple what actors were making at the time. Um, and so I started to get work as a performer in the circus world and in the nightclub world in New York, which was bubbling up in the eighties and nineties where you could get us, you could get a job at a nightclub, uh, performing over the dance floor two, three times over the course of an evening and make your rent in one weekend. I, mm. I literally remember performing two nights a week. The first night paid my rent and the rest of it, I sacked away as much as I could because I knew I would need, need that money. And I also would put it towards lessons, towards dancing, towards acting, but I was making so much more money as an acrobat that I just sort of steered away from theater at that time and just became a full-time trapeze performer. And that was, it was difficult in that time period to be male, again, in a, in a different dominated career, sort, uh, uh, career. There were six performers in the city at that time me and five women. So the five women had the lion's share of the nightclubs and of the jobs that were out there because there was always, there was always this thing about seeing the pretty girl over the dance floor, you know, and I get it. It's, it's, it's an aesthetic people enjoy, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean anything in particular. It's just people are attracted to that. So I would have to wait my turn to get into those nightclubs because those women worked every week. So I would, when one was out, and they didn't have a cover, I would go in. And um, so that's how I cut my teeth on multiple different apparatus as well, because if you worked at a club, if you worked every week, they didn't want to see the same act every week. They wanted something new. They wanted a different costume. They wanted a different apparatus. So I went from, from static trapeze to swinging trapeze to an apparatus called cloud swing to um, the, uh, what is a steel hoop looks like a giant hula hoop, but it's actually steel. It's called Lyra. Um, I performed on that. I would do, uh, there was a rope that spun called Spanish web. So you would lock your hand into a loop and then you'd spin 60 miles an hour over the dance floor. Um, and that was what the impresarios of the nightclub world were looking for, the excitement, the, the, the way to elevate the crowd so that they would actually stop for a moment and then drink more um, because mm. the action, what happens is the action of you up there for five minutes stops their conversation and it stops them from, from either, you know, stops them from dancing as well. Not, and then they end up finishing their cocktails and going to the bar. So the register would ring after every performance that you would go up. So that was what, that was what the impresarios were and the nightclub owners would do um, to plug you in. And, um, so then all through the nineties, I was training. I went to school in San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco to train at the circus school out there. Cause there was only one circus school in the United States at that time. Now there's like 6,000. Um, hmm. but, um, I then moved back to New York when my grandmother was ill. And after my grandmother died, I took a break from trapeze and circus and I got a job as a gymnastics coach. 
And I was not trained in gymnastics. I learned gymnastics backstage uh, doing circus. Uh, I worked with a troupe of Mongolian horse riders and the women taught me how to tumble. They taught me how to tumble into bales of hay so that I wouldn't get hurt because we didn't have too many mats backstage, but the bales of hay were how we, how I learned. And, um, it wasn't like I was an Olympian, but I could figure out how to do a round off back handspring back tuck. And I could put that into my repertoire. But then I started teaching children's gymnastics, coaching gymnastics. And it was a, it was a, it was an, it was a needed break. And it wasn't until a few years after that, that I was called back to the theater with the musical Barnum, which is a story of P.T. Barnum's life as told through a series of circus acts. And I became a circus trainer and I became a aerial sequence designer by combining my two worlds of circus and theater. And that led to the three shows that I worked on on Broadway multiple off-Broadway shows, national tours. I even worked with the rock band Fish at Madison Square Garden, doing Ariel in Madison Square Garden two, two times. And so I had the opportunity to, to, to have my, my, my aerial wings put into different industries. Nice. And, that led to, and that led to where I am now. Oh, nice. And yeah, that's, that's such an interesting life. And like you said, a very active one. Um, so I want to get back to you, you got the book with your mom and you've got all these things going off and I think from what you said earlier your mom was suffering for dementia until she passed for about six years if that, yeah, is that right than, and, it was a little more so than that we noticed it around 2009 but it didn't get really bad until around 2015 so what, how did that intertwine when that first started happening and you've got all this going on and you, you're achieving so much you're incredibly physically active at this time and I imagine um, even socially because of the scenario you're in very socially active uh, how, how did that transform because you said you became her main caregiver am I correct yeah that? yeah um, she moved up here with me in 2015 she was passed around from relative to relative. Uh, she was living with my brother in, in, in Florida and moved back up here. And then we were trying to find out, find a place for her, like an assisted living kind of a situation. Um, and uh, just couldn't find the right fit. So she was passed around relative to relative. Cousin Lynn, cousin Carol, cousin Deb, my nieces down in Florida took her in for a while. And then she finally moved in with me and it was incredibly difficult because she was, she was going downhill, but it, it, the thing is familiarity breeds contempt is the, the, the phrase I can use is that you can walk down the street in New York city and hear crazy people talk and hear them just rambling on about anything. When you hear those crazy things come out of the body that gave you life and the person that is your mother, um, it hits you in a different way. And there were many times that she would repeat herself. She would, she would forget certain things. She would forget immediately, like, that I made breakfast for her. Or, um, you know, I, I, I would leave breakfast for her in the, in the fridge and I would just say, okay, 20 seconds in the microwave and... Then, then you have you have a hot breakfast, um, and um, so there were there were. I noticed when she stopped making her own breakfast, which she's, you know, I'd have to put it, I'd have to put the food in front of her to get her to eat, and 
I was also not taking care of myself. I was sleeping on a chair next to her in the living room so that when she got up to go to the restroom, I would have to help her. I helped her. I bathed her. I changed her. I would, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, caregiving, you, you become selfless uh, when it comes to caregiving. You take your needs and put them on the shelf. You compartmentalize your grief. You don't show grief in front of them. But gradually, you're losing this person every day. So I, um, I was with her through all of her dementia. And, I, and then finally, she had two trips to the ER. Um, one was a pancreatitis. She ended up in a rehab center. Then they released her too soon. And then she had a pulmonary embolism and went back to the hospital, back to the rehab center. And that's when I arranged for her to be a full-time resident. And she was not happy about it. She probably hated that facility. Um, But I knew she was safe. I knew she was going to be taken care of. And I knew that I could visit her whenever I wanted. And they were lovely. They really treated her well. Uh, it was it was tough for me because my mother was fiercely independent. So to watch her independence slip away and watch the person that I knew as my mother slip away. Like when I look at videos and photos and things like that of her in the nursing home, because I visited her literally every day till they shut down the visitations to nursing homes. Um, I... I, I, you know, I look at those and I'm like, why didn't I see this sooner? You know, I, I, I was blind to the fact that she was indeed going through dementia and severe dementia. Um, but it, she knew who I was. She knew my brother. She knew my cousins. Um, they, she didn't know what year it was. She always thought that she had a green DeSoto car parked in the garage Um you know, she, she had, she would have memories of my father and say, when is your father going to come visit me? And then my grandmother as well, both who have passed for almost 30 years. Um, so looking back on it, I, you know, I, I, that's why I was writing the book was I was really using humor, her humor to cope. Um, and mom died at the beginning of the pandemic I didn't know how to express myself artistically as a gym, as a trainer, as a, as an acrobatic trainer, an aerialist. Like I spent my entire life dancing and in the air. And then all of a sudden there's no theater, there's no circus, there's no dance, there's no work. So I had to pivot again and do things online. Uh, I did voiceovers online. I did uh, stand up online, believe it or not. Uh, there was a benefit that um, didn't happen because of the pandemic. It was shut down, but they were still having the benefit online. So they hired me to be like the red carpet. So as people would dress up in their houses, they would show off what they were going to wear to the benefit. And I would be like the Joan Rivers uh, character. What are you wearing? You know, who's this? What's that? Oh my God, that looks horrible. What are you know, Where did you buy that? You should take you, the person who who made that, you know, and I would go through all these, you know, quips and they loved it. And it was, it was a way for people to connect. I, I voiced, I voiced a puppet, uh, over, over the course of the pandemic. I also am a licensed officiant. I officiated six weddings, both in person (laughs) and on zoom. Uh, so I, I, 
pivoted pretty quickly to online life, but also because I didn't have access to art, I was, you know, I did, a friend sent me a paint by numbers and I thought, oh, okay, that's fun. Then they did the jewel by numbers. I don't know if you've seen those little plastic beads that shine, you can make the, the paintings. And then oh. I, but then it was like the day after mom died and after I made her funeral arrangements, um, I caught COVID as well. So I was, not only was she sick, but I was, or not only she was dead, but I was sick and I was, I had all this grief that I had no place to go. Um, so I started writing. I started writing the cookbook first. And then um, I started compiling mom's quotes through my grief process. And I realized this needs to be a book. This needs to be um, for everybody who was out there who has dealt with, uh, you know, being a, being a caregiver, being, a, being someone who is responsible for, you know, basically, you know, preparing someone for the end of their life. And you know, as sad as that is, it can be a very beautiful thing. But uh, it wasn't until a year after mom passed that I really decided that it needed to be a book. And um, one year to the date, March 21st, coming up this a week from today, um, will be the second anniversary of mom's passing. But a year ago, March 21st is when I put that book together and actually really honed it down and had um, and, and really got it on paper. And I've been surrounded by beautiful people and wonderful people who helped me with that book. Um, you know, uh, we we have so many people to thank for the art that's in our life. But that in particular, I had so many people that I w were willing to just gift me their knowledge and um, authors, you know, giving advice and things like that. And, you know, someone and helping me edit because I'm not an editor. I'm not a writer. I'm not an editor. I'm not a chef, but I wrote a cookbook and I wrote my mother's quotes. I really feel like there's a lesson to be learned from the pandemic is that if life gives you lemons, don't make lemonade, make my grandmother's lemoncello tiramisu. It's in the book, you know, you know, <laughs> take, turn those lemons into something even more beautiful than lemonade. Oh, nice. Yeah. I have two things I wanted to, to, to get from that one one is when is the book out um where do people find it so uh well the shit my mama says is on amazon right now you can go to amazon.com hashtag shit my mama says and i sh that's how the the title came about was i was sharing those quotes on social media with the hashtag shit my mama says and um, I'm kind of giving it away. You can search for them and find them. Um, but in there, in the book, the, the first book was published in August, uh, July of last year, and um, I, it was it was published in July of 2021 because the memorial service for my mother and the uh, six people we lost during the pandemic was all one 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 group. But my mother was the only one being interred. Everybody else had their ashes scattered. Um, it was my, my mother's dream and wish to be buried next to my father. And because of the pandemic, we weren't able to have a burial. So she was cremated. And then a year later, a year and a half later, we put her ashes next to my dad. But I wanted that book to go into her ash vault. When you go mm. to a cemetery, what do you see on the gravestone? You see a name, the day they died, the day they were born, and maybe one statement if they were, uh, if they were in the army, beloved wife and mother, you know, I told you I was sick, whatever, you know, there's something on yep. there. Yep. 
And um, so I wanted that if in a hundred years somebody breaks open this vault and this book survives, they'll know a little bit more about the person whose ashes are in this okay. vault. And so I pushed really hard to get the book published um, in July of 2021. And then the, the cookbook, I'm on my seventh draft right now. I actually edited it yesterday and put in all the photos yesterday. Um, the cookbook is done. It's just trying to get get it all edited down for content and, uh, and for publishing. I'm hoping to do it soon. I had set a goal of Thanksgiving 2021, um, but that goal date came and went. Um, but we'll see. You know, I, I don't want to put a date on it right now, but... I know that it's, it's close. It's very, very close. So, but you ship. My mama says you can buy on Amazon right now. Well, nice. And do you have um, social profiles online where people can follow you for updates on when Absolutely. the next one's releasing? Sure. At Bobby Hedgeland Taylor on Instagram and TikTok at escape to ravioli mountain on Instagram and TikTok, And then in escape to ravioli mountain, a memoir and food on Facebook um, and, uh, yeah, find me on all socials and, uh, share your stories and share. And I encourage everybody out there to write and don't care what anybody else says, write because it will change your life. Yeah, definitely. And I'll be sure to put all them links in the description. I, I wanted to ask one more personal question as well to do with the caretaking. Having mm -hmm. like, I cared for my mum for three decades and I cared, ended up becoming a carer for my love, Danielle, as well for the last six years. Um, mm -hmm. A process that happened for me is I had to, it's a bit like you said earlier, you have to, you don't want to, you don't want to show the person you're caring for the pain that you're suffering through right. the acts that you're having to do and it's like witnessing them suffering and then you're suffering internally your own sufferings and all sorts of things are going on that are so emotional and for me I, I taught myself a process of just numbing myself and blunting in myself to feeling that pain and then it took time for me to realize that I had numb by numbing the painful pain I'd also numbed myself from joy from love from excitement and I had to rewrite and rewire all that process did you notice after caring for your mom that your sensitivity levels to actually good feelings had changed and did you put anything in place to sort of bring yourself back to life if absolutely happened? absolutely um well, here's another pivot that happened as well um, in April of 2020 or April of 2021, I had hip replacement. So a dancer, acrobat, physical performer, my entire life had the largest bone in my body replaced by titanium. Um, so that changed me completely uh, because now I'm, you know, I'm still trying to find out who I am in the, in the, in that, in that light. Um, but Caregiving is a selfless act. You, you hide yourself. And then, you know, the way that I dealt with the pain was through humor. And it was through not only the humor of my mom's book, uh, my mom's book, but the, and her quotes, but I, there is nothing more addictive to me than making an audience laugh. Hearing an audience laugh by something I said or did is the most addictive sound in the world to me. And it's something that I treasure, that I have that ability, because I know that if I didn't have that ability, I would go mad. I would be a basket case. And I don't think that that is, I don't think it's a bad thing to have in your, in your repertoire, the ability to, to spread humor and spread joy. And I will always look for 
the humor in any situation. I don't think that there's a, um, an easy way out of caregiving. You know, obviously when the person passes, that's, you know, it seems like that's the end, but it's actually not. It's actually the beginning. It's the beginning of your grief. It's the beginning of you processing that loss and navigating the world without that person. And, um, you know, to this day, I still get flooded with different types of emotion. Sometimes there's anger. Sometimes there's fear. Sometimes there's worry. Sometimes there's absolute love. And sometimes there's humor. Um, but you're still processing that loss. It's been two years since that fateful phone call from the nursing home saying that mom had passed. Um, but I, I literally, uh, come, come to it with, uh, with the utmost respect for my mother. She, she set out to be a mother, a mother. She didn't set out to be anything in life, but a mom. And she achieved that goal. And she, she, she wasn't perfect. Nobody's perfect when it comes to parenting because no parent comes with, and no no parent or child comes with a, a a a useful man a manual that says this is how to parent this is how to be a child. We kind of go with our instincts and and what our parents did and and that is where you figure out and how to navigate your way back to loving the person that may have hurt you and giving them a new. Uh, place in your heart. And I feel like that's where the process happens after they're gone. And that is what I'm still in that process. It's not, it doesn't go away after a year or two years. I'm still, you know, I still have thoughts of my father that I, you know, because I don't remember a lot about him, uh, I want to try to dig and find those memories that are still there so that I can memorialize him as well. And even though I, you know, I spent extra 30 plus years with my mom without my dad, um, I still, you know, I still have this, this love and admiration for both of them for what they gave me. And now that I'm pivoting my world, uh, who knows what the next steps are? I'm enjoying writing, but is that where I'm supposed to be? I don't know. And I think that that is the lesson is that the, you know, don't fear the unknown. Um, just, you know, listen to the universe and see what happens and step out and the street will come to meet you. Or as we say in the circus, step off the platform, the net will appear, you know? So. Yeah. yeah. Nice. And no, and I can, from everything you said and what you shared, I can really see how, like I said, even not knowing your father, that every time you've danced and you've performed and you felt, it seems to be that's like your gift and your sort of connection with him and every time you make someone smile or laugh or entertain them that's like your gift from your mother and when you're intertwining them with a, a, a book and writing and graceful sort of production of your words uh, and humor like it's a, a marriage of their relationship in your in your being so it's really nice to hear all that coming together and where you are now um, we're getting to the end of the show, I'm afraid. I could keep talking to you. My problem is I love to connect and talk to people. I could go for Absolutely. longer, but I have to try and, I have to try and keep these to about an hour. Um, when I first started podcasts, I, I didn't realize. I thought, I'll just go with the flow and see where it goes. And then after doing that podcast, it ended up like two and a half hours long. Mm -hmm. um, then I've got to edit that. And then, yeah, it's like, all right, I think an hour is, is good. Yeah, I, yeah, it's all good. But no, it's been really nice. I have a few just short, fun questions I ask sure. every guest at the end. Have you got a moment for them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you could choose one, cats or dogs? Oh, definitely dogs. <laughs> What's your favorite color? 
uh, red. What gets you excited? What excites and motivates you? Um, d- definitely the the uh, definitely creating humor. Definitely creating stand up. Creating creating those moments to make people laugh. And what does the opposite? What turns you off and just drives your energy to the ground? Um, entitled people, people who feel like they're better than everybody else or have to put people down to make themselves feel better. I don't have time for that. I don't have patience for that. Yeah. And there's no room well, for it in my life. No, I don't think there's no room for it in anyone's life. A, no. Like you said, it's just not a productive way of being. No, not at all. What sound or noise do you love? Oh, I guess I guess would be uh, birds. I'm a I'm a bird lover, so hearing birds first thing in the morning. Um, I feed birds on my windowsill. It's not really easy to do in the in New York, um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I I make bird feeders all through the winter so that I have birds by my window every year uh, all through the winter. Oh nice! What sound or noise do you not like so much? <laughs> uh, motorcycles. Oh, it's it's funny. I, I made people laugh. There was a group of motorcyclists really, you know, making their, revving their engines and driving past us. And it was, you know, macho guys in leather jackets. And there was a bunch of people sitting out on their deck uh, as these are passing by. And I, and I said, sorry about your penis. And they lost it. They laughed hysterically. They totally got it because that, that motorcycle, we call it little dick energy. Um, mm. And I don't know if that's, if you have to bleep that out, but either way <laughs> that, that I, I just hate that toxic masculinity as told through a loud car, a big car, a big truck or a motorcycle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost ironic with the, uh, the motorbikes and the look, cause it's the, all the lever. Yeah, you know, sleeveless vests and like in some ways it could associate being very camp you know all greasy exactly. all men exactly. all men together in a group and it's like a it's like which <laughs> yet they could it could be at the same time the most homophobic group at the same time exactly exactly but yeah then motorbikes because I, I spend a lot of time in nature and there's nothing worse than a loud motorbike flying through exactly. nature it just it's so unharmonic and it just destroys the atmosphere so quick yeah another thing i like is uh in the fall i used to love to hear the leaves rustle as the wind passed through the leaves oh, nice. it was the most meditative most beautiful sound and i miss the country i miss living i miss i miss living in pennsylvania i miss hmm. being able to go up there and just turn off the city for a couple of days i just miss that part of it and of course you know my my family's connection is there um but i just miss that part of it i miss that i miss nature a lot maybe when you get the cookbook done you can go get some publicity shots up there with the book and show the home grounds of where it all rooted from we we shall see uh the, the house was foreclosed in 2009 so it's basically uh a shambles now so it's not really it would be lovely if that if I could uh, you know do that, but um, uh, I think Ravioli Mountain is now part of my mind and not necessarily a concrete place anymore. Yeah. Okay. So. What do you love about yourself? That I'm funny. That I can make people laugh and make people smile. I that is one of that is my best my best trait. It is the one gift that I have that I am 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 fiercely loyal to. Oh, nice. What do you love in others? Um, openness, willingness to to accept people and chat with people who maybe have different opinions, but are willing to uh, 
willing to listen, um, to learn about other people. I also love that um, smiles. I miss smiles because of all the mask wearing. I miss seeing <laughs> people's faces. I miss smiling. And, you know, there's a, an old Dolly Parton saying, if you see someone without a smile, give them yours. And totally. I'm one of those people that if I see you frowning, I will smile at you to make you smile. Yeah, I was actually sharing with my love, Danielle, something similar, like at the beginning of the pandemic with a mask, because I always, if I'm in a shop, and especially if you're in a queue and there's a little child, like in front of you, is to catch their eye and mm -hmm. smile at them. And, and you see them instantly, just like you said, take it on themselves. They suddenly have this giant smile and it's contagious. Yeah. And then everyone's in the shop and then we've all got these masks on, but the kids don't have a mask. So I can still see their face. They're not smiling. And then I try to smile for a mask and it doesn't work. No. <laughs> and you don't get it's, it. And I was like, they're growing up without smiles. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting how this current generation that will remember the pandemic uh, in their youth. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they um, how they respond to it and how yeah, how they grow how from teenage it years go and yeah. And I mean, there were there were there were kids that you know in 2020 didn't get their high school graduation. They didn't get that. They didn't get their you know their their college uh, orientation the way the rest of us did. You know, some of them had to hold off for a year or a semester. So they mm. missed their, they missed all that, their friends, they missed their prom. They missed all those things that you do in high school. Although I hated high school, but, um, but for, for kids that are out there, like a lot of people, they missed so much from those two years. And I missed so much from those two years. When I think about it, when I think this was two years ago, it doesn't seem that long ago. It seems like it was yesterday, but it literally has been I, two yeah. years. I think it's one of them things like everyone remembers like if they were around at that time the moment where they were when JFK was shot. I forgot there's a saying right. for what these events are, where they were when 9-11 happened and the exact yeah. moment that they was in. And I think when we first heard that first two weeks, yeah, <laughs> I think we remember where we was and what was happening. And like you said, that was two weeks and it's now two years. And at yeah. the time, everyone's going, oh, it's, it's just a little thing, two weeks, yeah, two months, I little mean, thing, six months, little thing. I posted about this on Sunday because two, uh, I, two years ago, I had to make those phone calls and emails and, you know, tell people that we were, you know, shutting I down. I saw that post, yeah. You know? And it's like, that was literally like what we had to do to just maintain, you know, we were like, okay, two weeks, you know, it'll be, it will be back. We'll be okay. But then, you know, months went by before I even thought about going on the train to go to work. And just to, you know, to, to see people like I have pictures where, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've a whole file photo, a file of photos, um, from the pandemic of how you would have, have to go to the supermarket and the line around the block for two hours just to get into the supermarket because they're only letting 10 people at a time in for 30 minutes. And then, um, the line at the pharmacy with the plexiglass wall between you and the cashier, everybody in masks, everybody social distance, only 10 people allowed in the pharmacy as well. So it was like all those things going back and looking at those photos of what New York City was decimated like a bomb hit it. You know, we lost thousands, 20, 30,000 people in a six month period. It was, it was awful. And mm -hmm. um, walking past the funeral home where the, where my mother was 
and the, there was a refrigerator truck in the parking lot. All the hospitals had refrigerator trucks. All of the hospitals had makeshift morgues built on the sidewalk. They were these large wooden buildings covered with white tarps um, where they would keep their dead until they could be processed and buried or cremated or give back to loved ones. You know, it was this, it was like, like no other time period in my life. And I wanted to remember it very specifically with those photos, no matter how gruesome they were. Um, my city was changed. It was like after nine 11, I was here for nine 11 as well. And yeah. you know, the, the, the city was, has been, has been changed again. The landscape of the city has been changed again. Um, but it's very, it's very telling, um, as to how people get through all of that. It's going to be interesting to see, um, this generation, the new generation that lived through this, how they, um, how they grow up and how they yeah, go into they, their life. Yep, definitely. And maybe with all them photos, you might have your third book once ravioli mountains done coming along. <laughs> I, well, there, there are, <laughs> I do have plans to write another one. Um, and I have plans to write actually the book of a musical. I'm talking to a friend who's a music writer and um, we're actually writing a book, uh, writing a story that takes place at Burning Man, which is this big event in the middle of the desert every summer in, in uh, the Reno, Nevada area of, of uh, Reno, the Re outside of Reno, Nevada. And so it's a love story. So we're, you know, so there's, I, I'm not done. You know, I will, yeah, let's get I not, I'm, I, you know, when it comes to writing though, I wrote my book on my phone. I wrote both of my books on my phone. I auto dictated it and then emailed it to myself. And then I would edit it down into what, what ended up being the book so that I had the chance to what, whatever stream of consciousness was coming, I would get it on paper somehow. And that's what I did. That's how I made. That's how I managed. Every phone has a notes section, and you can auto dictate on all the new smartphones. So I encourage people do that first, and then your the rest will come. Surround yourself. Yeah, with did you did you go publishing route or self publishing? I did self publishing for shit. My mama says I'm still marketing uh, Escape to Ravioli Mountain as the possibility of having it published through a publishing house because it is. Uh, it is getting some, uh, some notice from the people that I'm sending it to, uh, getting good critique about it. Um, but I, I don't know for sure. I don't have a deal on the table. Um, but if yeah. not, it's going to be the self-publishing route. Cause that's what I did for shit. My mama says, and self-publishing yeah. is not a bad thing. It's actually, it's actually great. You get 60% of the, of the, uh, of the, the royalties and, um, and you also have the opportunity to market your book on different platforms. So you have the full, even though you, you have full control over it, you also have, you also are your own agent. You are your own publicist. You have to do your own publicity. You have to do your own marketing. And, you know, that has a reach, but it also, you know, it has its challenges as well. When you, when you're doing something through a publishing house, they're connected to all of those things and they will sell your book no matter where. And, um, you know, that's, that's just the nature of, being, you know, self-publishing and or doing a, uh, having an agent and a manager and a publishing house take your work and, and yeah. put it out there. Oh, nice. Well, Bobby, it has been beautiful to hear your story and to get to know you in uh, much more depth. And yeah, I wish you all the success with the future and 
yeah keep going man it sounds great thank and you. i look forward to following you online and just seeing oh, what you're up you. to and what you're doing thank you and uh and and i'll do the same uh, i man, have a beautiful day and thank you too thank you so much thank you anytime hey thank you man have a great day you too all right bye Thank you so much for being here and listening to The Selfish Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Greenheart, and I appreciate you being here. Don't forget to check out my YouTube channel. Just search Luke Greenheart on YouTube. You'll find me. Check out my website, lukegreenheart.com. Have an amazing day and stay tuned for more episodes. I'll be interviewing guests on their path of self-development, their path to self, getting to know them in much more intimacy, much more depth, sharing and connecting with all so we can have a much more blissful, joyful and productive life together. All right. Much love. Have a great day.